Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not So Serious, the student podcast for students by students. I messed up the introduction there, but you know what? We're going to roll with it. Um, my name is Aditya. I'm a first-year law and business student at the University of Warwick. And I'm Neil, a third-year computer science student at Sunwing University. And today we have a special guest. Uh, Professor Hugh Gill is currently the Associate Provost of Sunwing University, a psychology professor. He holds a master's in science from Oxford University and a doctorate in philosophy from Leeds, to say the least. And uh, Ani, would you like to introduce the topic? Yes. So given um, Professor Hughes' experience in uh, education, we decided to talk about students and how they perceive uh, the pandemic and what they can do better uh, as they approach schools opening up and as they approach uh, the impending doom of the job market. And so it's a conversation um, surrounding the bleak environment going on right now and how do we make it better. So welcome, Professor Hugh. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you, Adis. Lovely to be with you. Lovely to be with you again, Leo. And you guys looking very fit and healthy, so you've clearly had a very good pandemic so far. Uh, <laughs> I wish I wish it was the same for everyone. Um, I've been I've been quite all right. Uh, I've been working, and, and thankfully, I am about to fly off to the UK um, to do my degree. I leave in a couple of days, actually. Uh, and Dio, how are you, man? I'm pretty good. Just starting the third year of university, so I'm right in the thick of it. Right. Um, so let's let's kind of dive in. Um, I figured a good place to start would probably be to look at the past because I think that's a very good um, platform for us to discuss the current pandemic. Um, so Professor Hugh, I just want to talk about some major incidents in the recent past that have put students in a similar predicament. Um, namely, I think the 2008 financial crisis or the Asian financial crisis comes to mind. Um, you know, and if we look at trends, for example, we see uh, the 2008 financial crisis caused unemployment in the U.S. to be about 10%, and with COVID, it's about 14%. And, and you see that these numbers are strikingly high. Uh, and with the Asian financial crisis as well, you saw students being affected the most, um, especially with them coming out to the job market. They couldn't find jobs that paid as much um, as their predecessors did. Uh, and so on. So Professor Hugh, could you share, shed some light on, on those incidents and what you can remember from that time? Well, I can go back even further than that. So <laughs> I can remember recessions going back to the 1970s. Um, yeah, gosh, I am that old. Yes, and I'm still breathing. I know it, it's a shock. Um, but, you know, the fact is that economies are cyclical. They go up, they go down. And obviously, there are times when it can be perhaps more difficult to get a job, but the economy always recovers. So there are always opportunities out there. Now, the current pandemic is, of course, a crisis of a different order. It's not a financial crisis as such. It's obviously driven by this awful virus and the terrible impact that it's having on people around the world, uh, particularly, of course, older people. Um, but I would say that it's a shame. I, I think that younger people's economic futures have been affected so badly when they themselves are not susceptible to the virus. Um, and I think now some countries are coming to terms with that, that the virus is going to be endemic. It's going to be here forever. It's going to be just like the flu and the common cold, which are also coronaviruses. So we're going to need to learn to live with it. Um, and as young people, you're at a substantially lower risk than older people. So it should not really affect you as much in terms of your economic progress and in terms of job opportunities. 
let's come back to this idea of opportunities. Behind me, you can see on my virtual background, clouds. Yeah, and there is no such thing as a cloud without a silver lining. There are always opportunities out there, right? So the pandemic has already started, for example, driving even faster the transfer to online business. Um, and thinking about probably most of the people who are going to be um, watching this podcast, you're in a really fantastic position. You're highly educated. You speak probably one, two, maybe three global languages. And you now have an economy that accepts meeting like we're meeting now. You don't need to be in the same room anymore to do business. So if you've got an internet link, you've got a sharp mind, you've got opportunities to make money globally in a way that wasn't even possible two and a half years ago. People were not used to doing business online in a way they are now. So why not seize that opportunity? Don't look at this as a negative, look at it as a potential positive. You could be competing for business on another continent. So why don't you? That was actually, that's a really, really nice turn. And I, I do want this podcast to be a rather positive one. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, for everyone listening at home, there is a positive to this. Um, the pandemic has made uh, you know, making money a lot easier online. And I, I will also add, while we're on the topic of students, I think uh, Professor Hugh made a really good point on, on the online interactions with people. Uh, and I think that this pandemic has really shed light on online education, um, because I think that previously there was always this barrier between um, physical schools going to university, going to high school uh, versus doing online courses. For example, Coursera, um, EDX, they offer fantastic online courses that um, previously you know, had a lot of stigma around it when things were quote unquote normal. But I think that right now, um, I think a lot of people can understand when, when I say the phrase that I would much rather do a course on Harvard than attend my university lecture because honestly they are about the same. Um, whereas the Harvard course kind of gives me a little bit more advantage, uh, so to speak, with, with the name brand or, or whatever. And I think that it's a really, really interesting concept because I think this showed um, there's a lot more opportunity to learn as well. Uh, I'm seeing more and more students rely a lot more on online opportunities and free things online than actually universities and high schools. I think it's a very interesting thing. Leah, what do you think? No, I think, I mean, I agree with everything has been said so far. Um, but also we have potentially on already seen an explosion with the gig economy and freelancing and working from home. Um, so I think there are already a lot of people taking advantage of the fact that uh, they can just do the business online and you can basically get services or for example, graphical design can be done completely online. You don't even have to meet the person at all. You can just commission it and someone will take it up. So yeah, there is a lot of, a lot of opportunity. That's great. Uh, Professor Hugh, I, I do want to go, go into one, one small rabbit hole here um, and, and look at how I personally think that this pandemic did kind of expose some a lot of flaws in different systems. Uh, obviously, government being one big system that um, was very, very transparently flawed through this whole pandemic. But I think also education was one big thing. Uh, and students started to see and rise up to a lot of the things that um, I think schools, universities tend to do wrong. And I just wanted to get your comment on things like that. For example, I, I guess one case would be, uh, why hasn't fees gone down when, when you're at home learning? If there's no electricity fees or whatever. So could you comment on that? Well, that's of course a question I get asked an awful lot. 
Um, but I'll come back to fees in just a moment, uh, and it may be something you want to talk to me a little bit more about. But let's come back first to this idea of flaws. I'm not necessarily sure that's a fair way of looking at it. Um, now, you can say that the pandemic was predictable. Yes, it was predictable. In fact, this is what, the third coronavirus in the last 15 years that's come from China. So um, obviously they dealt much more quickly with MERS and SARS. Um, and unfortunately, COVID-19 got on a plane and got around the world a lot quicker. Um, but no matter how much planning you do, uh, there's no way of saying that uh, the pandemic we're experiencing this time is the same as, for example, Spanish flu at the end of the First World War. Clearly it isn't. For a start, people can get on planes now in a way they couldn't do 100 years ago. Even within their own homes and towns, people are a lot more mobile than they were 100 years ago. How many people had cars in 1919, right? How many youngsters were able to go and socialize with people more than maybe a mile or two away from their home? So all those kinds of factors have got to be considered when we think about how governments are responding. Similarly, looking at um, education, the actual classic model of education in a university is amazingly robust, right? It's a thousand years old. So you, know, you think Bologna and Oxford are a thousand years old, the world's oldest surviving universities. And by that, I mean true universities that have had a, a broad curriculum teaching more than a single discipline. And why do, why do these places originally exist? Well, they exist because of the price of books. Um, think about it. Every book a thousand years ago is handwritten. So if you want to know what's in the book, there aren't many books. What do you do? You go and sit down in a large room and somebody stands up the front and reads the book. Uh, you call that person a lector. I think you're probably beginning to understand where we get the word lecture from. So that model has been pretty resilient for a thousand years, despite the invention of movable type printing 500 years ago, which drove down the price of books, despite the invention of radio, despite the invention of television. But it's only this pandemic that's actually caused us to think that model afresh and realize there's an awful lot of stuff we can do online. But the thing is, university isn't about learning stuff. Most people make that mistake. They think it's about the discipline. So, Addy, you may be off to Warwick and you may be going to learn law. Fantastic. But actually, what you're going to do at Warwick is a lot, lot more than learn law. It's about being with a lot of other bright young people. It's about discovering who you are, finding out about them and deciding who you want to be. It's about being around a lot of old people like me who've got a bit of experience and hopefully some knowledge of our discipline who can help you on that journey of self-discovery, who can help you find out what you're good at, where you perhaps need to improve, the things you don't like, how you want to spend the rest of your life, how we can help guide you to learn to think, to be a critical thinker, an engaged person, to help you make some of the choices that will make you be a happier and more filled adult. You can't really do that on Zoom or Teams. You can't just bump into people in the corridor on Zoom and have a five minute chat. You can't just spontaneously go for a coffee with somebody on Teams. 
You can't just pop into the library and see something extra on the shelf that you weren't looking for that suddenly catches your eye and makes you want to read and maybe takes you in a whole completely different direction. So actually being physically with people on campus is really what the university experience is about. And I wrote an article fairly recently um, in which we actually quoted the research we've done with students showing that the campus experience is central to what it is to be a student. And without the campus experience, you're not really attending a university. You're just learning stuff. And hey, what, you know, MOOCs? We had MOOCs when I was your age. Really? Yes. We used to call it television. Right? <laughs> On would come an expert, and if it was made by the BBC, over 13 hours, right? Normally one hour a week for 13 weeks, a quarter of the year, that expert would deliver the most amazing, oh, we used to call them programs, but they were actually lectures. You can buy these on DVD. So things like Kenneth Clark's Civilization, if you want to understand uh, the rise of the Western artistic tradition, right? Watch Civilization. If you want to understand the rise of Western science, watch The Ascent of Man by Jacob Bronowski. These were MOOCs. I have to say much better film than even modern MOOCs because they have much bigger budgets and much better locations. But nevertheless, that's what they were. That's what they were. So this is nothing new. Yet we still wanted to go to university to be with other young people. So let me now come to the resources and fees issue. Why haven't <coughs> universities cut the fees? Well, that's actually because, believe it or not, doing it online is just as expensive and in many cases more expensive than doing it the old way. So many universities, including Sunway, were already transitioning to delivering some things online. Of course we were. Uh, but in most cases, what we were doing was equipping our lecture theatres with cameras to record traditional style lectures. We had never foreseen that we'd have to go into lockdown, send everybody home and equip every single member of staff to be an online lecturer overnight. That cost a lot of money, right? Because people who had desktops suddenly needed to have laptops. We suddenly need to invest in all the necessary equipment for them to do all this stuff from home. Secondly, the systems to do it. Um, that's expensive. It costs a lot of money to invest in Zoom, to invest in Teams, to invest in all these different platforms and to make them accessible to students. Thirdly, e-resources. So we've had to produce, for example, a much greater number of e-books. So certainly the experience we had in some ways that many students would often borrow a book and then maybe four or five students would go and socially read through the book together. It would become a social event to talk about something together. You can't do that with an ebook. Each person needs one copy, and ebooks are expensive. Shockingly, in fact, they're often more expensive than traditional textbooks. And as soon as the publisher upgrades the ebook, guess what? The price goes up. Some publishers also want a paper borrow. So actually expanding all those kinds of resources has cost more money. And then, of course, the campuses haven't gone away. So we still need to maintain all of those facilities. So in some way, can you imagine what would happen if we just switched off the aircon and went home? Well, the building would fall down. So all of the usual cleaning, security, maintenance, investment in facilities has had to continue. We can't suddenly stop our investment plans because of the pandemic. 
So all of those costs on campus have conti continued, along with all of the staff costs, which are our biggest cost by far, plus all the additional investment uh, in extra e-resources and new systems. And I haven't even touched on all the things like welfare, counselling, support, dealing with students who are trapped in airports around the world, dealing with students from overseas who suddenly ran out of money, dealing with all the problems with lockdowns, students trying to travel between jurisdictions. All of that has had to be dealt with. Um, and of course, we didn't have systems to do that because we never dealt with those kinds of problems. And we've then had to move everything else online. So if you want to enroll in the course, well, fair enough, you could do all that online. But in the past, if you wanted to change, you would probably go and see somebody and ask about what you could do and what you couldn't do. Well, we've had to make all of that available online. And that's taken new systems, building new systems. So actually, our costs have gone up. The pandemic has cost us a lot more money than we'd expected. And there have also been some funny, we might get into, some funny other things that have happened as a result of the pandemic that we could never have predicted that cost us additional money. So turning it around for a moment, we could actually say, why aren't we putting up the fees to cover all these additional costs? But we're not. Obviously, what we're trying to do is maintain as far as we possibly can access at the lowest possible cost that we can. And we're trying to maintain running essentially two systems online and face-to-face -face. because again when we hope to reopen fairly soon in the next two or three weeks we think we'll be able to reopen campus we're going to have to run everything hybrid we'll have to run everything face-to-face -face and online at the same time that's not a cheap option it's going to increase our costs again substantially but hey you know we're in the business of managing this um, and we will come through the other side and as i said at the beginning it's an opportunity so we have learned that we can do something better online and it means the mix of what we offer in the future will be different, I think, to what perhaps we were doing two to two and a half years ago. And I think that's gonna be better for everybody. So I'm gonna pause there. I've talked a lot. I'm sure you've got some questions and comments of your own. Yes, thank you so much. I, I think it's a very, I've never actually considered the fact that you are actually running two systems, the fact that you have the offline um, infrastructure still maintained. Um, and obviously the cost of ebooks and training and systems and so on still, still fall. So I think that's a very interesting insight to put out. Um, and by the way, for the people listening at home, wherever you are listening at, uh, MOOC stands for Massive Open Online Courses, uh, which are the traditional um, online courses that you find on, on Harvard or EDX and so on and so forth. And um, Leo and I will link the article that Professor Key was talking about in the show notes below, and hopefully you guys can give that a read and understand um, the impact about being on campus uh, university. Uh, but something I do want to ask, uh, Professor, I just want to circle back onto uh, what you talked about, which is the infrastructure or the system that university or classical education system is built on, um, the concept of lectures and the cost of books and so on and so forth. And how, uh, you know, over the years, especially I think over the last 10 or five years, uh, education or information has become a lot more accessible. Um, and as such, I still understand, I still think that university is incredibly important for all of the non-disciplinary related things that you get, experiences, the network, being able to just be around someone who has a lot more experience than you, I think is very, very valuable. But, you know, at its core, which is about teaching a discipline, um, I, I do, I'm still of the opinion that um, delivering the content wise, I think that universities have to rethink their model of how they teach the discipline. Um, whether that be integrating 
uh, more digital, more online, more updated systems that actually incorporate what practical information is out there, um, or whether it's by drumming down on more experiences and removing the emphasis on, on disciplinary content. I just wanted to get your opinion on if we were to rethink how we ran universities, what do you think is something that um, is best focused on? Or should we? Okay, well, again, you're know, talking about another area I've done a little bit of writing around. This, this was pre-pandemic. Um, and I was thinking about the gamification of education. Now, most people think of this in terms of things like little certificates and short-term goals to keep you motivated. And fine, that is part of gamification. But the logical endpoint of this is that we are going to fractionalize, we're going to reduce the size of awards into a series of discrete, potentially micro-credentials is, is the buzzword at the moment. So uh, you're studying law, Leo is studying um, IT and computing, but what if both of you want to learn something from those other disciplines? Now, under the Sunway Plus model, we have that opportunity for you because you can take a range of electives from any other discipline. Um, at some point in your second year. Uh, but in many traditional degree programs, that was never an option. But think about it going forward into the future. Uh, what if you want to do uh, part of a master's in law, but you don't want to do the full master's? I suspect what will happen is you may identify two, three, four modules that particularly interest you, but say you're only maybe interested in doing half of each of them. Micro-credentials will enable you to do that, to say, okay, I don't want to do the full three credits of this module. I only want to do one credit. I'm only partic particularly interested in one particular learning outcome. But then, actually, there's somebody teaching that in Florida who's particularly interesting to me. Now, online, I can attend their lectures. So I might choose to be registered at Warwick, but studying for one credit in Florida. Similarly, I might choose to be studying for two credits to make up the full three for that particular subject, maybe a little bit further down the road from Warwick in somewhere like Birmingham. Why not? So what I can see happening in the future is that students will begin to assemble their own programs. They'll take credits from different institutions and different courses within those institutions. They may also choose to acquire that knowledge over a longer period or even a shorter period, right? So in Malaysia, we operate um, a learning outcome system. I know various international uh, partners and uh, comparative systems have tried this and not tried this, but ultimately what we're talking about is the capacity to demonstrate um, a level of mastery of a particular skill or an understanding of a particular area of knowledge. Now, if you can acquire that in six weeks, why should we arbitrarily say it should take you three years? That just seems to me crazy. Think about your driving test, right? If you can pass your driving test after three days of practice, nobody says, no, sorry, you've got to take three years. So why is that going to happen with academic qualifications? You can already see this now with some of the professional qualifications. Uh, Qualifications that are actually accreditations built around competence. 
it doesn't matter how long it takes you to acquire what you need. All you need to be able to do is demonstrate that you've achieved the necessary level. So again, I can see that people will be moving through the educational system at a different rate. And potentially that means that some of the old boundaries around age will just begin to break down. And that, of course, is truly the meaning of lifelong learning. Um, why can't people study for particular qualifications at points in their lives that suit them when they've acquired the necessary competence? Why should that be tied to a particular phase of life or a particular time? So again, I think the pandemic is going to drive those changes. So who knows, in 10, 15 years time, people may be doing very general degrees. that might be science or technology or arts orientated with a series of essentially electives drawn from other institutions on the terms they choose. And they'll be coming out with a very general bachelor's qualification. That, it seems to me, is going to be more of the future education. Yeah. I agree with that a lot. I think I said on a previous podcast episode that I would like university courses to be more modular. So and it seems to be going that way. Um, oh, now I have something else to say, but it slipped my mind. Ani, do you have any comments while I recover the thought? Yeah. Um, I do think that the, the modular system is really interesting. I think I would be very, very fascinated of doing, um, you know, certain parts of my degrees from, from various different universities and getting that experience. Um, I just have a micro question of sorts. Uh, but Professor Hugh, have you heard of um, Minerva University before? I have heard of Minerva. Goes of wisdom. Yes. Um, so there is this university after the name. Um, and for those of you at home and don't know what this university is, it's based in the US in San Francisco. Um, but they have a very unique approach to the education system, I'd say. So their application process isn't exactly based on an entrance exam um, and your test scores. Um, they do calculate your grades and they have a very extensive extracurricular list, but they also have um, video interviews, on-demand interviews online and, and a bunch of competency tests that are more logic-based um, as a part of the application process to enter the university. Um, but the interesting thing about the university is that the university has no physical location. There is no university. So students move with their batchmates and every semester, they do it in a different city, in a different country. So they start off in San Francisco and then they can move to Berlin. They can, well, I think it's Munich. And then they move to, to Tokyo, they move to Mumbai uh, in India and so on and so forth. And all of their lectures are online, but all of their assignments are, they use the environment they're in. So for example, this very popular YouTuber, her name is Anjali Jade on YouTube. Um, she goes there, she, she vlogs her, her experiences and some of her assignments involve going out onto the streets and doing something, interacting with um, the you know, practical side of, of what they're learning. And I think that's a, a very interesting approach to taking it because I think it gives you a very global perspective. Obviously, you're forced to learn new languages and new cultures. Um, and I think the added practical part uh, makes it very interesting. I wasn't actually looking at joining that university in the past because I was a bit skeptic um, about its credentials, but I heard recently they've actually been like officially um, recognized by um, the US accrediting body for universities. So they are actually accredited at this point. But I just wanted to hear what, what, did you, what do you think about the university professor? I think, I think it's a wonderful idea. But I think that what will increasingly happen is that students will be able to have 
if you like, the Minerva experience by registering with a home institution and then taking the opportunity to travel to other institutions. So again, I'm involved here in some way, uh, very much in student mobility. And in fact, we're sending some students abroad, abroad now, this week. Uh, they'll be going to the UK like you. Um, and they'll be going over uh, to spend a semester with, uh, in fact, our main partner, Lancaster University. Right, and I think there's gonna be a lot more of that kind of activity taking place. Uh, so what's interesting is, I'm sure everybody is aware of Brexit, um, and that the UK was obviously part of the Erasmus scheme, which was operating okay. in the European Union. Um, now, we're interested here in Malaysia in its replacement, the Turing scheme, which is the UK government scheme for UK students only to go overseas. So unlike Erasmus, it's not a sort of two-way thing, it's the UK government encouraging UK students to go overseas. And I was amazed to see the statistics. So apparently, I might get this slightly wrong, um, but during the period when Erasmus was running, um, approximately 15 to 20,000 UK students would travel abroad under Erasmus. I understand in his first year of Turing, they've had nearly three times as many applications, which is not what anybody expected. Um, now, I, I don't have any detail on that yet, and I may have got those figures slightly wrong, but I know that Turing has proved to be a lot more popular than Erasmus. Um, I don't know why, but I suspect that students are now realizing that the opportunity to travel is not just about having that great experience. It also, of course, adds value. If you're familiar with another culture, if you speak some of that language, you're now much more valuable as a graduate because you can now work with a range of other people online. Now, that's the other wonderful thing about building a multidisciplinary team from around the world. We can now do that online, but those cultural differences haven't suddenly disappeared. So cultural awareness and understanding of other people's thoughts, languages and background is still gonna be extremely useful. And if you've had that firsthand in their country, you're gonna be much more easily able to work with those kinds of people from different backgrounds. So again, I think the Minerva experience is something you are going to have increasingly from traditional universities. That is I am very, very excited for the future of education in that case, honestly. Yeah. Uh, Leo, did you remember your question? I did, not really a question, but my um, thought is that, yeah, age is very quickly becoming less and less of a barrier. Um, you find, I think, with certain schemes like um, ADTP, American Degree Transfer Program, and foundation courses, you find uh, students in university agents going down gradually. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add that in. Right. Um, well, I, I would just like to kind of take this discussion on a, on a different tangent um, and move on to this last segment where I actually want to ask Professor a little bit more about you um, and in your background. So Leo introduced you as the Associate Provost uh, for Central University and as I understand you are also a psychology lecturer um, and I kind of wanted to understand a little bit more about what your role entails uh, as an Associate Provost at Central University. <laughs> uh, if you find the answer to that question, let me know. <laughs> I'd be interested. Uh, so I obviously have, I have a series of formal responsibilities. 
um, particularly around students. Um, so um, I deal a lot with uh, student related matters, um, but I get involved as well. Uh, for example, we're now setting up um, a new uh, center for organization and professional education, uh, which is gonna offer a whole range of micro credentials. Um, so I'm the interim head of that, establishing that. And so that's part of our um, business facing lifelong learning arm, taking new and interesting courses, making them available um, out there for anybody actually, um, over 21, if I fit into the MQF correctly, um, because we're offering mostly a, a master's level. Um, so I get involved in that. I get obviously involved in things like student mobility. Uh, I also get involved in the franchising of our programs to partner institutions. I also get involved in dealing with partnerships with overseas and domestic institutions. And of course, I get involved in doing a bit of research here and there. And occasionally, if I'm lucky, I get into a lecture theatre, either physically or virtually, and get to be shown what I don't know by the bright young minds who are in there with me. I really love uh, that, that last bit. I honestly have a really big admiration for lecturers and professors who kind of make an effort to, to make this a conversation when they do their lectures. Some of my favorite lectures have been people of that sort. Um, but I think that the work that you're doing sounds incredibly fascinating. And something else that, and I, I ask this question a lot because this is an area that I'm very, very interested in, is multidisciplinary experiences or this idea that your entire life isn't tied to one thing. And this is something I talk about a lot because I feel like many students my age have this misconception that if you study this one degree, you are more or less fixed on this one path. Um, and I wanted to ask you because um, as it happened when I was stalking your LinkedIn profile, um, I saw that you previously had worked for Standard Chartered Global as part of their assessment and strategy implementation. I think that's the name, uh, somewhat of the name of the role. Uh, whereas if I'm not mistaken, your educational background goes around more philosophy and, and psychology and, and education in that kind of realm. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you did at Santa Chartered, that experience, um, and as well as this idea of going into a job that isn't exactly related to your degree? Well, let, let me start by saying your degree is not your destiny, right? It doesn't matter what you study, right? It really doesn't. And this comes back to this idea that university is not just about the discipline, right? The discipline is important, yes, but it's a means of teaching you how to think, how to learn, right? How to apply yourself um, to solving problems. And all the things that you learn while you're studying are directly applicable in the real world as well. Now, as you've rightly picked up, I've actually spent most of my life in business, okay? So um, although I'm now sitting in an academic role, uh, I've spent most of my life finding ways to try and make money. Um, and the best way to make money is actually to make other people's lives better so they give you money for doing it, right? So that's the secret of business. Uh, any successful business is about providing people with something that makes their lives better so that they will give you money to do that. And whatever you're studying, if you can find a way of applying that in business, you're now in business. So what do you think lawyers do? Um, lawyers are essentially in business. You might be practicing the law, but you've got to get clients, right? You've got to provide a service that people want to pay for. 
Similarly, uh, if you're studying computing and, and IT like Leo, you've got to have a skill that people want to buy. Even if you're an employee, basically you're in business. You're selling your labor and your intellect to the people who are paying your salary. So in the end, no matter what you're doing, it's about leveraging whatever it is that you've got, whatever talents you have, to maximize what you uh, become valuable for, whether that be directly uh, to an employer or to any kind of customer. Uh, and many of those skills will directly translate across different areas of activity. So if you know, for example, how to structure a good argument as a lawyer, you can write a good business case. You can make a good sales pitch. These are all exactly the same skills. They're about understanding how to organize information in a way that convinces other people of whatever point of view it is you wish to put across. And you might learn that as a lawyer. You might learn that studying literature. You might learn that studying philosophy and rhetoric, all the, the ideas of Aristotle. Or you might learn that as a psychologist, learning what are the things that make people agree with you. Um, so never feel that you're limited by what you've studied. Think about building a life that is rich in terms of experience and that also enables you the capacity to develop your talents and sharpen your skills. So look for new experience, look for new things to do, look to leverage what you already know to take you to new places and develop and mature. That's the whole purpose of having a life, isn't it? Is to have experience. Why would you want to just do the same thing forever? Uh, and particularly young people today have many, many, many more opportunities than previous generations. You are so lucky. You are so lucky uh, to be able to sit there and complain that the Wi-Fi has gone off. How <laughs> wonderful is that? How wonderful is that? How privileged are you? Think about it. You live and have a higher standard of living than any medieval king or pharaoh ever had. And you will live a lot longer than they would ever have hoped to have lived or even dreamt of living in a much higher standard of health. It's a fantastic time to be alive. You are so lucky. You're on the edge probably of a time of great abundance. So enjoy it and take all those opportunities while you can. Don't limit yourself by saying you must have one job doing the same thing forever. Move, do something different. And also, I suppose the last thing um, I'm always saying to people is have a plan. Think now about what you would like to do in your life and plan it. So I have a life plan. And in my life plan, this stage of my life, I wanted to go into research uh, and into education. That's why I'm sitting talking to you from a university. I didn't quite follow the direct path I'd expected. I hadn't expected Standard Charter to come along in the middle between me leaving my own sort of entrepreneurial businesses in university but it was a wonderful opportunity and it brought me to Asia. So why wouldn't I have taken it? I'm very grateful to Standard Chartered to the wonderful time, the wonderful people that I met there. But I had a plan of things I wanted to do. And there are still things I want to do with the rest of my life. And because I've got some idea of what I want to happen, I'm steering my canoe. I'm not just going along with the flow of the river. I have some idea of where I want to end up. So I would suggest you sit down now and think about what do you want to get out of life? If you're a young person of 20 today, you've probably got another 80 to 100 years to spend. So think about what you want to do with that time and spend your time wisely. 
because it's the one resource you can never get back. Thank you, Professor Hugh. Honestly, that was really, really insightful. And people at home, um, you are incredibly privileged. We have such a good opportunity here. Um, we, I, I remember reading this book, uh, it's called The Hook Point. Um, and it says how we have more information at the tip of our fingers than almost all the US presidents ever had. Um, so, you know, at the beginning of, of its uh, timeline, obviously. Uh, and we have so much power that we can do and so much opportunity. Um, and as Uncle Ben said in Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, and it's important to have a plan to steer that venue. And I think that we talk about having a plan a lot on Not Just Serious. And it's all about, I think, understanding where you, what you want out of life and finding paths and opportunities and tugging at strings that you think will, will take you there. Um, and last thing, because we want to tie this up, I understand you have another meeting, is um, where can one re read your research and, and understand more of your articles and see the work that you do? Well, um, that depends. Some of it's in the popular press, some of it, of course, is in the academic press. Uh, if I'm writing in either of those spheres about anything you're interested in, you'll probably come across it. Um, but hey, there are so many things out there, as you just said, Addy. Um, I once heard a statistic, I don't know if it's true, um, that there is more information in the average Sunday paper than the average uh, educated person would have come across in their whole life in the 18th century. There is so much stuff out there. Don't limit yourself. Don't just try and read my stuff. Read whatever takes your fancy. And the more you read, the more you inform yourself, of course, the happier you will be. So much. Leo, would you kindly um, exit us from this uh, podcast? Thank you so much, Professor Hugh, for speaking to us. All right. So, as our regular close on goes, uh, if you liked this episode, please give it a thumbs up. I don't forget what it is. But, uh, <laughs> okay. If you'd like to connect with us uh, in the future or follow what we do, please follow us on Instagram at NOTFOFRS. That's not so serious. Or you can also send us an email at admin uh, at notsoferious.com. And please follow us on whatever you're following. That will conclude. Thank All you right. for listening. Uh, I'm not the one that pressed record. No, you are the thing that pressed record. Can I remember? It says record on this computer. I think. Uh,